certainly look forward to that. But as a church, we are not just in here, but we are out there. We are beyond these walls. So turn with me to today's scripture reading, if you're able. We'll be in Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, as we continue our summer series on the parables of Jesus. It's Luke chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, and it will also be projected behind me and on the various screens around the building. So Luke 14, starting in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he came, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they, all alike, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servants, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my name. Let's continue to worship the Lord through song. We're looking today at Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. Several years ago, probably 20, 25 years ago, a young lady with her fiancé went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston in order to prepare for their wedding banquet. They poured over the menu. They made selections for china and for silver. They pointed out pictures for flower arrangements that they liked. They both had pretty expensive taste. The bill came just for the meal and everything. This was 25 years ago, better. 13000 After leaving a check for half of that amount as a down payment, they went home to, to look through the books for wedding announcements. For the day that the announcements were supposed to go out, the potential groom got cold feet. He said to his fiancée, I am not so sure about this. Um, that's a big commitment. Maybe we should think about this a little bit longer. He dumped her. He dumped her. When his angry fiancé found out all this, she returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet. The event's manager was very, very understanding. She even shared how she herself had been dumped all she had gone through. What about the refund? Bad news. She could 
get 1300 out of about 6500 So the lady says, it's up to you. You have two options. You can forfeit all the rest of the money, or you can have a banquet. Seemed crazy, but the more this jilted bride to be thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with a party. Not a wedding party, mind you, but just a big blowout. Ten years before, she'd been homeless. She'd gotten a job. She built up a good nest egg. And now she had this wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and out of Boston to a night out on town. And so it was in June of 1990 in the Hyatt Hotel, downtown Boston, a party such as never been seen before took place. The hostess changed the menu a boneless chicken in honor of the groom. She sent out invitations to the rescue mission and to homeless shelters. And that warm summer night, people who were used to getting pizza out of the trash can, people who struggled chicken cordon bleu. The Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served appetizers to the senior citizens who were propped up on crutches and aluminum walkers. You get a picture? Bag ladies and vagrants. Addicts took the night off from being on the street. Enjoyed Instead of chocolate wedding, instead of eating the old pizza, they had chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band blues melodies late into the night. This morning, we're going to look at another great banquet, another banquet that's open to all who are considered nobodies in our culture. Let's look at Jesus' parable banquet. And to have a clear understanding of this parable, we need to understand the setting. We need to know the context. Jesus was eating in one of the wealthy leaders of the Pharisees on a Sabbath. In Luke 14, verse 1 says that they, the Pharisees, were watching Jesus carefully to catch him in some violation of their laws. Pharisees, if you remember, believed that to heal someone was work and therefore not permitted on the Sabbath. Jesus was invited not for hospitable reasons, but for hostile ones. The Pharisees, if you remember, were always at odds with Jesus, both in their beliefs and in their practices. It seems that he was invited so that could bring a specific charge against him. They planted a man with dropsy, which is the body retains the fluids, right across from Jesus, so they could trap him. That was very 
typical of the Pharisees, if you remember. I looked just in the Gospel of Luke and probably saw eight, nine, ten times where they had the same type of thing. But I'll give you two or three just to get a picture. In Luke 4, 28, 29, we read that after Christ had read a Messianic passage attributed to himself, it says that they, the Pharisees, woke us up and drove him out of the city. We're going to throw him off a cliff. No love lost there, huh? Luke 6, we see that Pharisees were filled with fury after Christ had healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. In Luke 11, the scribes and the Pharisees tried to provoke Christ. They wanted to trap him here again, make him say something they could use against him. In Luke 20, we read, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something that he said so that they might hand him over to the Roman authorities. This gives you a picture of Jesus Christ and his relationship with the Pharisees. It wasn't a warm one. As we think of guests, Jesus wasn't this typical, quote-unquote, polite dinner guest who went out of his way to not offend anyone. Jesus knew this man was not there by chance. Then you didn't you rather that they placed him there because he was compassionate. Can you picture the stiff silence as they watched Jesus as this man with dropsy sat across from him as Christ laid his eyes on this man? Before healing the man, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. Is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Of course, Christ knew their answer. But verse 4 says that they remained silent. Not a word. Not a word from these Pharisees who were so strong in healing be, being wrong on the Sabbath. So Jesus, being Jesus, healed this man in front of them. They watching him were angry. Can you imagine though, the Pharisees had these laws. Nothing in God's word, nothing in the law of Moses said that they could not heal. After sending off this healed man, Jesus asked the Pharisees a second question. He says, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well, Sabbath, will you not immediately go and get it out? You see, they put it into place for themselves. If an ox or something were to fall into a well or whatever, they could go and take care of it. But he asked me, he says, if you have if you're a child or if you have an ox that falls into a well, would you not immediately go and remove it? Verse 6 says that they remain silent. These Pharisees who had so much to say said nothing. Silence. Silence. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. No matter what they demanded of others, they made exceptions for themselves. You see, they valued animals, their animals, more than people with tremendous needs. When 
next, Jesus watched as these men picked out the seats of honor at the dinner table. He then delivered this piercing message about humility. He must have humiliated them as he shared. Finally, his attention must have been rising more and more. The Lord tells the host that he invited the wrong people. He says, you, you should have invited the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind instead of your friends and relatives and rich neighbors who can return the favor. At this point, I'm sure you could cut the tension with a knife, as the saying goes. At the end of Jesus' rebuke, he mentions in passing the resurrection of the righteous. Well, to break that tension that was so strong, one of the men there tried to sound pious and spiritual, cried out, Amen. It would be wonderful when we were all there. Said to him, a man once. 
once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent out his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. For they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Then another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. The servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. Still, there's room. The master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges Sometimes months, up to uh, to years, 
justify his plan without first seeing it. And why does he have to go and examine this property on the same day as the dinner? It's very clear. This man didn't want to come to the dinner. He represents the ones, people who are so tied up with our possessions and investments, he has no time for God. He forgets that maybe on that very night that his soul might be required of him. And then, then who would have all the things he worked hard to accumulate? It's kind of like if I was on the phone and I called Chris and said, um, Chris, I just uh, I bought a house over the phone. I've never seen it, but it's good and I'm going to go check it out. Nobody buys a house without looking at it. It's just not credible. Well, the second man's excuse was equally pathetic. He says, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. In other words, he bought ten that I must go examine them. Another flimsy excuse. A yoke of oxen would need to be tested in advance to see if they could pull together. No one would ever go make a purchase without first testing. I can't imagine any of the farmers that I know back in Alabama or Louisiana who would go and buy a tractor and pay tens of thousands of dollars and say, I'm sorry, I can't go to a wedding. Banquet, um, I go check out and see what kind of tractor I got. Don't do that. But the third excuse was simply rude. He didn't even say, please excuse me. He says, I've just got married. I can't come. Well, since the feast were organized, sometimes up to a year in advance, the man knew, he would have known that's going to clash with his wedding. Making his wife out as an idol, putting her before God. Luke 14, 26 says, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own wife or your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Strong call. Truth again is that these invited guests did not want to come to the banquet. This is a picture of how the religious leaders were responding to Christ. They didn't like him. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he believed. They didn't like the people that came around him. The truth is that none of these excuses in of themselves were sinful. There's nothing wrong with buying land or buying animals or buying machinery today. The Bible commends very much taking initiative and hard work. There's certainly nothing wrong with marriage and family. We're commanded to love our family. But you see, people and things can hinder us.
maybe someone here this morning who's caught up with your possessions, maybe with leisure pursuits and pleasure or careers, so that you're neglecting your soul. And maybe someone here today may be single and longing for a mate, thinking that if I just had a mate that would satisfy me and being willing even maybe to marry a non-believer,
waiting for the Messiah.
us from sharing. Sometimes we can see these motorcycle gangs and think they don't want the gospel, but when we go to Moody, there's always this big group of motorcyclists with their their special clothes on, their vest that they wear. It's easy to think they want the gospel. Maybe we see someone whose clothes identifies them as a Hindu or as a Muslim. We think, ah, they're not open to the gospel. Yet, if we look at what's going on around the world, Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ by the thousands. The gospel is for all. The gospel is for those who don't look like they want it. think like that, we're limiting the power of God's invitation through the gospel. The Spirit of God can use the gospel of Jesus Christ to change every sinner from every background who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Master says, come, come, everything is ready. All you need to do is come. It's free because the host I think this is one of the most beautiful things about the gospel invitation. It's free. I still remember when I come to Christ and all my family were not, most were not believers. And they all had this idea that you had to work for your salvation. And as I shared the gospel with them, people over and over, my family looked at me and said, that's just too simple. That's too easy. That's not true, Ralph. It's not true. But over and over I would tell them the gospel is slowly, within six to eight months, I think 11 of my siblings and nephews and nieces and aunt, my mom, came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, one of the most difficult things because people cannot accept the fact salvation. We somehow want to pay for that meal. We feel better about it. There's only one way that God offers salvation. He pays for it all through faith in Jesus Christ, through what Christ did on the cross. And all we can do is come to Him. Come to Him in faith and receive it freely. I love how one author describes the life in Jesus Christ. He writes, Come, come, everything is ready now. Everything. All you can eat and more besides. He makes all the necessary provisions beforehand and puts them on the table. And when you walk in, you see the table loaded with appetizers. Help yourself. Salad bar along with soup. Go back as often as you wish. There are several selections for a main dish. Would you like steak or maybe prime rib or lobster? And to top it off, there's wine for dessert. Most wonderful feast you can imagine, all freely provided by the host for all who will come and eat. What a great
great picture, isn't it? Of the abundant salvation that God so freely offers to sinners. And when you come to the banquet table in Christ, He doesn't just give you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. No. He gives you the works. Jesus Christ is that fountain. Fountain of living water to wash away our sins. He gives you the indwelling Holy Spirit to give you peace, to replace your anxiety, and joy to replace your depression, and power to overcome your sins and wisdom to make right decisions. You have fellowship with Him every day. This gracious Savior, the promise of eternity with Him. The Apostle Paul describes this in this way. God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. Long before you and I ever thought of God, He was thinking of us. He was thinking of us. He made a generous provision of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And today, God is calling out to us through His Word and through His Spirit. Dinner's ready. Dinner's ready. Come. I've prepared everything for you to be saved in God's judgment. To dine with me. To fellowship with me. For eternity. And will you say, will I say, yes, Lord.
not just four and five year olds who assume that. When I come to faith in Jesus Christ, I never forget a young lady who was a couple years older than me, probably 27, 28 years old. She grew up in the church. Her mom and dad and her family were the pillars of the church. They were godly people who loved the Lord, who loved to give to missions. She grew up in it. And at age 27, Tara came to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, being in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Being in a Christian family doesn't make one a believer.